0: Welcome to Dragon's Eye Podcast, where we reassert alchemical balance by delving into profound and esoteric subjects from an all-encompassing perspective, such as ancient myths, arcane magics, cryptids, and ancient astronaut theory, and many other related topics. I'm your host, Shaman Gaia, a spiritual life coach and intuitive healer. I'm joined by my co-host, Morphia an investigative journalist, scholar, herbalist, and fellow shamanic practitioner. So step into the portal, the dragon's eye, and join us on a rite of passage that will rekindle your wonder and re-inspire you to ever-renewing heights. On this eerie Friday the 13th, we descend into the cryptic realm of vampires, fanged creatures that quench their insatiable thirst for life's crimson elixir. Beyond the enchanting veneer lies an ancient tapestry woven with tales of blood-sucking, shape-shifting, and otherworldly powers these vampiric legends far older than dracula are an enduring presence in our collective human experience we delve deep into the legends of the hopping Jiangshi of china romanian strigoi with their mercurial gifts the seductive lilitu the bloodthirsty terrors of corpse dwelling entities of india and dark mystical legends of caribbean and greek mythologies just to name a few As these threads intertwine, we illuminate the connection between vampires and werewolves, two cryptic entities often painted as opposites in modern times. Amidst the chilling exploration will pierce the heart of the enigma that is the Count of Saint Germain. Was this famed alchemist a vampire or an ascendant master? His shadowy legacy echoes throughout the annals of occultism and alchemy. Some people even claim to see him to this day. As the night deepens, we beckon you to join us on this spine-tingling rendezvous into the uncharted mysteries of the vampire. A journey that will leave you thirsting to uncover the unknown. I have mixed feelings about this episode. Not because I don't like the topic, but because it was kind of difficult to do research for. How do you feel about vampires, and why do you think it was so difficult to gather information about vampire sightings and accounts, specifically in the modern age? What's going on there?
1: Institutionalization and officialdom, that is one of the reasons why we are in the state presently. The internet has also been hijacked by said powers that be, and so you get a lot of cleansing, sterilization, as they like to call it, and that is a big part of the
0: problem. Yeah. And that's really interesting as well because we also have some of these minds in these academic circles who really don't think like that at all. So people like Young and even Aleister Curley, even though he was, <laughs> he wasn't necessarily of the academic persuasion. He he ran in those circles.
1: Yeah, that's true. Jung and Crowley specifically, they were two very renowned examples of people who they were running in those circles they were associating, but they were not at all a part of them as far as their philosophies and what they espoused as the truth. Meaning they oftentimes went completely against what the institutions, the people that were promoting the institutions were actually saying and calling truth calling fact. I think it's quite fitting that we have as one of the key characters in this podcast, Alistair Crowley is included in this Cryptid Connection Vampires podcast because many people viewed Alistair Crowley as a sort of vampiric personality type or just a vampire flat out. Right. He was known to participate in many rituals that were considered by some people questionable and he himself professed being a quote unquote black magician but the point being he was also interested interested. interested in all things vampiric and similar entities that were known to have that makeup. Some background on Alistair Crowley, he was one of the world's most renowned magic practitioners in thaumaturgy, necromancy, hermeticism, and much more. He also authored countless books in addition to being a covert double agent connected to both World War I and World War II British, German, and American intelligence departments. In a preface in his book, Magic Without Tears, he had this to say about vampires. Quote, the evidence for vampires is as strong as for pretty well anything else in the world. There are innumerable records extant of legal proceedings wherein the most sober, responsible, worthy, and well-respected citizens, including the advocates and judges, investigated case after case with the utmost minuteness, with the most distinguished surgeons and anatomists to swear to the clinical details. Endless is the list of well-attested cases of bodies dug up after months of burial, which have been found not merely free- with all the lines of life, but gorged with fresh blood. I cannot help feeling that all the superior person explanations, which explain nothing, about collective hysteria and superstition and wish fulfillment and the rest of the current tomfool jargon are just about as hard to believe as the original straightforward stories. It is egomaniac vanity that prompts disbelief in phenomena merely because they lie outside the infinitesimally minute pillule of one's own personal experience." Quote.
0: In the Encyclopedia of Spirits, Judica Illis shares in her entry on vampires that these beings exist throughout many different cultures but all share very similar characteristics. They drain their victim's life essence one way or another. Even though Hollywood depicts these creatures as spellbinding and captivating, they're not generally considered to be cuddly and lovable. The vampire is an aberration and an abomination existing in both the worlds of the living and the dead. The word first appears in an anti-pagan treatise that mentions and prohibits the worship of what they called on that's the original word, in villages in that area.
1: Did you say on Yeah. And that's spelled...
0: O n p y r. Yeah,
1: okay, so very similar to the traditional version.
0: Yes, and that's where that spelling comes from. It is a Turkic word, so the kind of Slavic and their later Russian adds the v sound onto the beginning of that word. According to these Eastern European cultures, a vampire is the manifestation of an unclean spirit possessing a decomposing body. The undead creature needs the blood of the living to sustain its body's existence, and is considered to be vengeful and jealous toward the living. Although this concept of vampire exists in slightly different forms, it's possible to trace the development of vampire belief to Slavic spiritualism preceding Christianity in Slavic regions. Vampires were also considered to be the corpses of witches or magicians who rise from the grave for one reason or another. Yeah,
1: I've gathered a lot of that in my own research.
0: Yeah, that one movie where the Nazis go to that town and there's a castle? What was that one called?
1: Yeah, it's like a fortress. You're talking about the old 80s movie, The Keep.
0: Yes, that's exactly what the images when I was researching these ancient Eastern European cultures that venerated these creatures. There was a healthy respect and yes. I would say fear of them. Yes. And again, that anti-pagan treatise was Pope Gregory who went on to turn the entire <laughs> Eastern European region into one big Christian society. Yeah, and one more bloodbath. Right, yeah. exactly. So he was the main one who was like, well, they are not going to worship these onpeer, these vampires, these creatures." It's sacrilege, even though...
1: (laughs) Yeah, so it's the sacrilegious. Right,
0: and they were living perfectly fine with their understanding of nature and the balance of that.
1: Yeah, well it's interesting that you mentioned the keep and the creature that was in the keep. It was definitely a vampiric type creature. They sealed it in that fortress, that village, sealed it in there, and then of course the Nazis came in and screwed everything up and unleashed it. And then it basically turned on the Nazis and started eating them. Literally, so you know yeah. much deserved. You know? Right. <laughs> it was a good movie. You know, there are a lot of tales in that era and predating that time period of these types of creatures and even specifically referencing the Nazis. It was said that the Jewish people during the persecution of World War II actually resorted to what was later called the homunculi or homunculus. It was a sort of being that was ritually summoned to exact revenge. It was like an avenging spirit and so it also by nature was a sort of vampiric entity.
0: It's important to note that the blood-sucking part of this modern vampire myth is not really included in the original accounts of vampirism. It's widely believed, and I widely believe it, that this was adapted to move away from the insinuation that sexual life-force energy was the vampire's primary food source. Right. And this makes sense when you consider that the movies that we're seeing about vampires are coming from Western Hollywood, yeah. and they are notorious for suppressing any kind of sexual reference. and. Absolutely. So, yeah, and so they use blood, which can be used to insinuate something a little bit more sexual, but without coming out and saying it outright. But now it's been widely attributed that vampires are bloodsuckers, primarily. You know, as many of us who've had bad relationships know, it's a lot easier to draw someone's chi or their sexual energy than it is to drink their blood. And honestly, the blood drinking is a little comical because, especially, like, in True Blood, most of the time it ends up getting spilled all over the place <laughs> and making a mess. And if it's supposed to be food... Maybe like, like
1: what, what we do in the shadows?
0: Yeah, just yeah. like that. What we do in the shadows right. where he's, like, trying to lay down newspaper... <laughs>
1: It's going all over the place. It's going all over the place. It's ruining his frilly blouse.
0: It's frilly vintage clothes. Yeah, it's impractical to be like, yeah, we just drink blood, and it was usually drawing energy, making people sick and dying, as opposed to their actual blood. Although there are beings that were drinking blood. That's and I doubt that.
1: yeah, that's correct. That's what I was just gonna say. And the research that I've done I have found that there are plenty of mentions of actual blood drinking entities right. and the shades that are referred to so much in the Greek myths. And other myths referred to by different names entities like that there are actual creatures that can gain a certain corporeal material existence even if they start out as just a sort of shadow being as long as they are provided with blood and enough of it so those myths also exist and the two probably run parallel civilizations in ancient Mesopotamia featured narratives about demons with a penchant for drinking human blood and in some cases, eating human beings. Among these, the Persians stand out as one of the earliest known civilizations to pass down stories featuring these creatures. Evidence of these beings consuming human blood can be found in depictions on fragments of unearthed pottery. In the chronicles of ancient Babylon, stories of the legendary Lilitu were prominent. This was an entity closely associated associated with and contributing to the emergence of Lilith in Hebrew folklore, along with her offspring known as the Lilu in Hebrew demonology. Lilith was regarded as an allegedly malevolent spirit and frequently portrayed as sustaining herself by feeding on the blood of infants. The ancient tale of Lilith was originally included in certain traditional Jewish texts. According to medieval folklore, she was believed to be the first wife of Adam preceding Eve. In these accounts, Lilith departed from Adam, choosing to become the Queen of Demons. She unwaveringly refused to be subservient to Adam and was subsequently banished from Eden by God. Much akin to the Greek Strigis, she would hunt infants and their mothers during the night, as well as males. To safeguard their children from Lilith's attacks, parents would hang protective amulets around their child's cradle. An alternate version states, The legend of Lilith or Lilitu initially came from Sumer, where she was described as a barren but beautiful maiden, and was believed to be a temple harlot and vampire whom, after having selected a lover, would never let them leave. Lilitu was considered to be a humanoid, bird-footed, wind or night demon, and was often described as a sexual predator who lived by consuming the blood of babies and their mothers. This first textual appearance happens in an ancient Sumerian epic named Gilgamesh and the Hulubu Tree, which was written as a series of poems in clay tablets, originally known as Inanna and the Hulubu Tree. This epic dates back to 2000 BCE Babylonia. The poems were written on several tablets and integrated into a larger poem. Some tablets still exist to this day and can be found written not only in Akkadian, the Semitic language that was spoken by the Babylonians, but also in Hurrian and Hittite, in Gilgamesh and the Halupo tree, Lilith builds a house in the middle of the Hulupo tree that had been planted near the Euphrates River in the days of the creation. This tree happens to be in the garden of Inanna, also known as Ishtar, the goddess of erotic love. Lilith is joined by a dragon who places his nest at the base of the tree and by a zoo bird who places its young on the crown of the tree. The alleged hero Gilgamesh appears and slays the dragon with his huge bronze axe. Stricken with fear, Lilith tears down her house and flees to the desert.
0: Another vampire-esque being from that region of the world was the Akimu. The Akimu was in ancient Assyria, the evil ghost of someone who was denied entrance to the underworld and was doomed to wander the earth. Akimu means that which is snatched away, and someone would become an Akimu by dying a violent or unsavory death, such as by murder, in battle, drowning, or succumbing to exposure in the desert, which left the corpse unburied. And I'm seeing that this is something that across all of these vampire legends and myths and accounts as well. Yeah, I've seen that also, and especially in the later European
1: and medieval era.
0: Yeah. The spirits of buried corpses could also become an akimu under other conditions, so like if proper funeral rites were not observed at graveside, if the person died without surviving family, or if the spirit had no one to care for it. Because as you know, as we mostly know, in these cultures, caring for the dead after they have died was a big part of that kind of cycle of life. Yeah. Because it was understood that, when you die, you don't just disappear. Great. You kind of linger. Great. And so, because of all of this, the ikimu was greatly feared, because it could attach itself quite easily to virtually any living person, regardless of whether that person had been acquainted with the dead one that had become an akimu. So much as looking at an impure corpse could result in being haunted by the akimu. At least, the akimu was a nuisance, and at the worst, it could cause the death of an entire household once attached to the living, it was extremely difficult to exercise, kind of like a leech or a tick or something like that. And the Akimu also appeared as a death omen outside of the houses of people who were about to die, and in this way it was associated with creatures like the Banshee in Ireland. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Other Mesopotamian demons, such as the Babylonian goddess Lamashtu, Sumers, Dime, and Galu of the Utuku group, are mentioned as having vampire natures. The Mashtu is a historically older image. Many spells invoke her as a malicious Daughter of Heaven, or of Anu, and she is often depicted as a terrifying blood-sucking creature with a lion's head and the body of a donkey. This is yet another reference to varied shapeshifting abilities as well as being a daughter of Anu, also known as An, the leader or head god of the ancient dragon astronaut beings. More information about An or Anu is included in the book, Flying Serpents and Dragons, The Story of Mankind's Reptilian Past, by R.A. Boule. Akin to Lilitu, Lamashtu primarily preyed on newborns and their mothers. Lamashtu or Labartu, she was said to watch pregnant women obsessively when they went into labor. Afterwards, she would steal the infant from the mother to drink its blood and eat its flesh. In the Labartu texts, it is written of her, Quote, wherever she comes, wherever she appears, she brings evil and destruction. Men, beasts, trees, rivers, roads, buildings, she brings harm to them all. A flesh-eating, blood-sucking monster is she. Galu was allegedly a demon closely associated with Lilith, though the word like Utugu is also used as a general term for demons. An incantation tells of them as spirits that rage at people, threaten every house, eat their flesh, and as they let their blood flow like rain, they only want more, an endless bloodbath. Labashtu, Lilatu, and Galu are invoked in different amulet texts, with Galu showing up in Greco-Byzantine myth as Gelo or Gailo. There she appears as a child-stealing and child-killing female demon in the manner of Lamia and Lilith.
0: That reminds me of a story that I heard about the Hmong tribe of Asia. They're a nomadic group of people and they have recently settled in parts of California, Southern California. Yeah. One of the things in their tradition is when a woman is giving birth, she does it silently so that she doesn't attract spirits that will want to eat her or her baby. And I find it interesting that it is translating across cultures like this. And you've got the ancient Lilatu and the Lamashtu and all of those beings. and then and over here, in modern times, you've got these stories of people who have for centuries been practicing a lifestyle thing based on the fact that there are these beings that exist. And I feel like that further solidifies their existence, really. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And that's interesting.
1: The silent childbirth, that's a very interesting concept that you can tell can be traced back to that
0: speaking of child vampire-eating beings and modern times, in Guyana, the country that I'm from, we have a being called the old haig. In other parts of the Caribbean, they call them sukuyan, which is kind of giving a hint into what they do. They suck the life out of things. And old haig in Guyana, from the word hag, was typically an old woman in the village who, at night, shed her skin and flew from house to house, drinking the blood from people while they slept, and they had to return to their bodies by dawn. Those people were usually pregnant women, or newborns and women who had just given birth.
1: Yeah, and hag that is basically just a derivation of hag. then.
0: Yes, that's with the patois. Yeah. It was often concluded that the reason that these people were old people or looked like old people is because the process of getting out of your skin and putting it back on made it look wrinkly. And so the way to catch an old hig, which I didn't hear any Lamash do catching tips from the Sumerian accounts you were using, but we have all kinds of ways to catch an old high. So to catch an old hig was finding its skin and put salt in it so that when it gets in, its skin is shrunken from the salt and it can't fit. Or, if they get into your house, you want to keep them from being able to leave before sunrise, because they had to leave before sunrise, by scattering rice grains or beans, and they would be compelled to count it. Which I find interesting, because when I was researching, other cultures also said that the way to stop a vampire was to have it count things.
1: Yes, yes, I've seen that in the European cultures as well.
0: And I did some research into this, because naturally, what is this connection about? And in the Encyclopedia of Spirits, Judica Illus describes vampires as being compulsive because they're low-level entities. They feed off of life force, which is what that means, to be a low-level entity. So, in Guyana and in China, they say spread beans and rice. In some cultures, they hang nets over the door, and the vampires are compelled to count all the knots. Yes. And that's how people have been catching vampires in the act for centuries.
1: That actually reminds me of some of the modern-day reports of the alien abductions because specifically concerning the greys, Mm -hmm. apparently some people have caught them having great difficulty with ropes and things of that nature. Some people who have felt their presence as very harassing and imposing, they have tried things like tying themselves to their beds so that the greys can't actually levitate them out of their rooms and through their windows. So they have reported that by tying themselves to their beds with just basic knots and several of them that the greys seem to be very conflicted by this and they just cannot or do not want to take the time to try to undo the knots and they seem to be very unable to do so with the dexterity that they have at their disposal because their brain power is so much involved that their fingers and the dexterity in their actual hands is lessened to a degree so right.
0: yeah it seems like they cannot handle a knot <laughs>
1: Right, and that was definitely a dad joke. Ancient Greek myths contained several antecedents to modern vampires, though none were considered undead. These included the Ebusa, Lamia, and the Strygus, also known as the Strix of ancient Roman mythology. Some of these terms became general words to describe witches and demons respectively. Ebusa was the daughter of the goddess Hecate and was described as a demonic, bronze-footed creature. She feasted on blood by transforming into a young woman and seduced men as they slept before drinking their blood. Lamia was the daughter of King Velas and a secret lover of Zeus. However, Zeus's wife Hera discovered this infidelity and killed all Lamia's offspring. Lamia swore vengeance and preyed on young children in their beds at night, sucking their blood. Like Lamia, the Strigas feasted on children, but also preyed on adults. They were described as having the bodies of crows or birds in general and were later incorporated into Roman mythology as Strix, a kind of nocturnal bird that fed on human flesh and blood.
0: There was another blood sucking creature from Caribbean myth known as La Jables. That's Diables, but again, Patois, so they called her La Jables. Yeah. And she also had strange feet. Her feet were backward, and sometimes they were hooves. And she would dance, and people would be like, wow, what nice shoes! But it was her hooves, like Dear Woman almost. Yeah. And she would lure men who were cheating on their wives into bushes, and it would be an illusion, and then they'd walk off the edge of a cliff or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that one.
1: Greek vampiric entities also appear in Homer's Epic Odyssey. In Homer's tale, the undead are too insubstantial to be hurt by the living and cannot communicate with them without drinking blood first. In the epic, when Odysseus journeyed into Hades, he was made to sacrifice a black ram and a black ewe so that the shades there could drink its blood and communicate. This is an interesting mention about the shades in the Greek mythology because in the occult practices of the West, people discussing summoning the shadow beings and certain occult practices you find that the shadow beings can give you information but they usually want an exchange and many of the shadow beings prefer blood. So a lot of the people that are dealing in these specific types of rituals will begin bloodletting either themselves or something else and you actually feed these creatures and then they can take on a substantial material form, and that is definitely a type of vampiric entity.
0: Yeah, and that is also where traditional African or even West Indian spiritual practices get the kind of blood sacrifice uh, right. title yes. or classification, because often people would sacrifice the blood of a goat, a chicken, to have a god or an entity manifest into a body and then do whatever it is that they need done. Yes. So there's something to the blood aspect of all of this that makes it so powerful that it can literally bring things across dimensions. Right, yeah.
1: And I've seen a lot of that in Voodoo. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm talking about, yeah.
0: Yep. Let's hop on over to China <laughs> to examine some hopping ghosts, the I, Jiangxi. I see what you did there. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. I thought it out. I thought it out. Well, it's nice. The Jiangxi are, in popular Chinese mythology, reanimated corpses that hop around, killing living creatures to absorb qi life energy from their victims. It wasn't until the movie Dracula reached China that Jiangxi were given blood-sucking attributes. In fact, the title Dracula is translated in Chinese as blood-sucking Jiangshi. Do you remember that animated Gremlins series that we watched a few months ago? Yeah, I remember that. So, those are the creatures of that specific episode, where the main characters were wandering through that forbidden forest. Yeah, okay. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Zhang in that series were kind of green and phosphorescent, and they had long teeth and nails, and that's one of the manifestations, but they can sometimes appear to look like a normal human being. They have difficulty walking because of the pain and stiffness of being dead, and they're also blind for the same reason, so they hop around instead, which makes sense. Like, yeah. why are they moving it as if they're alive when they're not? Right now, yeah, that does make sense. Zhang Shis are nocturnal creatures, and it is said that they are particularly vicious and rip the heads off of their victims or other limbs as well. Mm. They were also said to have a really strong sexual drive, and so they often attacked women. And after a period of growing stronger, Zhang Shis would gain the ability to fly, grow long white hair, and you'll like this because it ties into our werewolves episode change into wolves. Mm. Yes. And I remember we saw this kind of Jiangxi in that one episode of the Jackie Chan Adventures when they were at that castle. Yeah, right. That's and it started off as a really weak, feeble, kind of skeletal-looking being, and then as it fed off of their fear and their life force, people would get tired, mm-hmm. and then it turned into like a flying, white-haired menace. Yeah, definitely a vampire kid's hmm Usually, Jiangxi can be evaded by holding your breath. Like I said, they're blind and they track living creatures by detecting their breathing. And as with the strigoi, which we'll talk about later, people protected themselves from Changxi by using garlic or salt, a little bit like the Western vampires. They were driven away by loud noises, and it was thought that thunder could kill them. People used brooms to sweep the creatures back to their resting spots, and iron filings, rice, and red peas were used as barriers because, again, if they saw these things, they would have to count them. And once the Jiangxi reached its flying white-haired stage, it could only be killed by a bullet or thunder, and then its body must be cremated. Villages that are infested with Jiangxi recruit a Taoist priest to perform ceremonies to exercise the negative energy. The priests traditionally rely on talismans, yellow strips of paper with characters written in red ink and blood, and it's commonly believed that with incantations, the priests can activate the talisman, and totally incapacitate a vampire's action by putting it on its forehead. And once it's under that spell, the priest uses a bell to command the vampires back into their graves. Yes, central interesting. If the vampire was too strong to subdue, the priest will usually draw upon a wooden sword or a sword made entirely of copper coins linked by a red string to injure it. It's also conventional feng shui, actually, to place a piece of wood approximately six inches high along the width of the door to prevent a hopping horse from entering the household. Interestingly enough, Shi were created after particularly violent deaths, such as suicide, hanging, drowning, or smothering. Just like the Ikimu, a Jiangxi could also be created as a result of an improper burial, as it was thought that the dead would become restless if their burial was postponed after their death. The Shi were not known to rise from the grave, so their transformation had to take place before they were buried.
1: In India, tales of Vitala, ghoul-like beings that dwell in corpses, are found in old Sanskrit folklore. Although most Vitala legends have been compiled in the vetal Panshah Benshati, a prominent story in the Katha Sarasagara. Tells of King Vikramaditya and his nightly quests to capture an elusive one. The batel is described as an undead creature who, like the bats associated with modern-day vampirism, hangs upside down on trees found on cremation grounds and in cemeteries. Peshasha or Peshash, the returned spirits of evildoers or those who died insane, also bear vampiric attributes.
0: Interestingly enough, according to the stories in Romania, a vampire is a strigoi possessing a bat or other creature like that, just like a werewolf is a strigoi possessing a wolf. But the word strigoi is not necessarily just for those two. It includes ghosts, banshees, wraiths, ghouls, and other shades of undeath and all forms of lycanthropy. A Strix, or Strigoi, is a troubled soul of the undead rising from the grave, although some can be living people with certain magical abilities. They have the ability to transform into animals, they can be invisible, and they can drain their victims of blood, or like the Shi of psychic life force energy. Depending on how one becomes a Strigoi, you can also find Strigoi that walk around in the daytime, so they're not just nighttime creatures.
1: Yes, that's interesting, the reference to walking around in the daytime, because some of my research have seen that as well in other cultures, creatures that are not just nighttime vampiric entities, but can also appear in the daytime.
0: I feel like that makes it a little bit more real or too real for people, especially in the Western world, who are like, these are just myths, these are just stories, because then it takes away the aspect of, oh, this just happens at night in the dark. No, these beings can be anywhere at any time. They do what they do, and it's not a specific rule that they have to be at nighttime,
1: nighttime creatures. And I think that going back to the creatures that appear in the daytime, and not just at night, but they're also vampiric entities, they feed off blood, shapeshifter entities, that is another reference hailing back to these dragon beings and some of the more dragon-like creations, the first beings that were here and that apparently founded all of life on the planet, or at least most of it. So it's interesting.
0: It's interesting to note that, unlike the Strigoi of the Strain, these beings weren't necessarily zombie-controlled by one master. It's more like, in the other cultures that we discuss, the word that we associate with this being as vampire it literally refers to any supernatural being that drinks blood or sucks energy out of somebody else. Right. And I feel like this demystifies this idea of vampires as totally different classes of beings and puts them in with the cryptic and the supernatural being category is because our society's idea of a vampire is not the same as the other cultures that we've spoken about thus far. I feel like we can see where the attributes came from, but we also see a distinction and see where it's been definitely glamorized and romanticized.
1: Yeah, and specifically the American, the Western ideal of the vampire, the vampiric entity comes largely from Hollywood, again, the drama queen of America, right, Hollywood. exactly. You know.
0: And in this myth of the Romanian Strigoi, we get one of the Western vampire-killing techniques where these beings are supposed to be vulnerable to iron, and if you were protected by a deity or you used rituals involving salt and garlic, you could be protected from a Strigoi. The other main way to stop a Strigoi that was a vampire was to bury it facing down instead of facing up so it wouldn't be able to rise up from the grave. It would be facing the wrong way. Yeah, I've seen that.
1: The Icelandic Dregur is usually translated as ghost, but unlike mainland ghosts, Icelandic undead were believed to be corporeal. Some Icelandic scholars have maintained that the Icelandic Dregur has more in common with the Eastern European vampire than it has with most beings categorized as ghosts. Medieval Icelandic undead can be put into two categories, the first being varomen, or guardians, which are undead that stay in a certain place, usually their burial mound or home, and protect it and their treasures from thieves and trespassers. These draegur are depicted as being driven by greed and unwillingness to part with their worldly belongings and are in many ways similar to dragons. The second category, tilbury are parasitic ghosts who roam the earth and harass the living and try to drive them mad or even kill them, often by dragging them into their graves and thereby turn their victims into more draegur. Tilbury is a type of undead in Icelandic folklore, a human rib given life by drinking the blood of a witch and then sent out to steal milk and money. The comparison of Icelandic Dregur to vampires is not entirely new as it was also made by Andrew Lang in 1897 when he called the Dregur Glaumr in Gretish Saga a vampire. There is also some similarity in the methods used to destroy Dreygur, as those used against alleged vampires. Decapitation of the suspected corpse was common, as was driving nails or sharp stakes into the body to pin it down or into the grave.
0: There seems to be, in this realm of vampire slaying, a very concerted effort to make sure that they stay in their graves. Yes. And that takes us to the story of the Dolmen Stones, specifically one in Ireland. So the Dolmen Stones are monolithic grave sites found across Western Europe, and while there is a shroud of mystery around them, the story that I'm about to tell you is a very popular one. It was the vampire story that inspired Bram Stoker's Dracula. We've actually watched a horror comedy about this story. It came out in 2020, The Boys from County Hell. Do you remember that?
1: No, that was a good one.
0: It was. So for those of you who haven't seen it, The Boys from County Hell is about a road crew that disturbs the grave of Ireland's most famous vampire, the ortok Ortok is actually the Irish word for dwarf, and Irish historian Bob Curran told the story of a vicious ruler whose subjects wanted him gone. The Ortok was a great tyrant, and the people living near him were so scared of his magical powers that they coaxed another chieftain to kill him. Some stories say that this is a legendary Finn McCool, others say that it was just another random chieftain. The chieftain succeeded in killing and burying the Ortok, but he came back the next day rose from the dead everyone was really surprised and so the chieftain killed the ortok again and for the next two days it kept on rising from the dead the chieftain would kill it again he got frustrated because he's saying how is this happening how is this man rising from the dead they tried to bargain with him the ortok demanded a bowl of blood from the local villagers every time he rose so that's where the blood drinking came from in this specific story interesting Mm -hmm. so the third time the chieftain went to a druid and asked for some help because again you're not fighting magic with regular stuff you gotta fight magic with magic so he goes to a druid and the druid advises him to use a sword made from wood just like with the chiang right? Mm-hmm. a wooden sword, slay the Ortok and bury him facing down, just like with the Romanian Strugoi. So he did that, and the ortok was finally conquered, and they put a dolmen over his grave so that people would know, don't disturb this, there's evil buried here.
1: Uh, that makes sense, and that makes the movie make a lot more sense to know. So the dolmen stones, can you elaborate on that for us? What exactly are those representative of?
0: Yeah, so the dolmen stones are supposed to be grave sites, the graves of giants around Western Europe, England, Wales, Ireland, that general area. And again, like I was saying earlier, there's a lot of mystery around their purpose. People were asking, is it a type of henge, like a stonehenge? But they seem to cluster in a way that suggests that they're probably more like grave sites. But they're so massive that people say, well, these these can't be the gravesites of just regular-sized people, or kings, or chieftains. They have to be covering for much larger bodies.
1: Uh, Interesting. But, Ortak, you said that actually means dwarf, but this person, this being, was actually huge, right?
0: Yeah. So that's a little bit of pop culture strangeness. So usually when we think of dwarves, we think of like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and these little men. But in folklore and history, dwarves were giants. And in the most recent Thor movie, where he got a weapon remade, they had to go to a dwarf, but the dwarf was the size of a planet. He was massive. So that's more of the historical representation of dwarves instead of these little guys. They're supposed to be huge lumbering giants, humanoid beings.
1: That's very interesting. I know that Ireland, Scotland, those areas over there are replete with stories about dwarves and, like, the leprechaun-type beings and Mm -hmm. things like that, as well as the druids. It's interesting that the druid aspect is included in that story also.
0: Interestingly enough, there are so many different versions of this story, and across the versions, you can see which prevailing religious ideology was around at the time. So, and I chose the Bob Curran version because the other versions were talking about instead of going to a Druid, sometimes the chieftain went to a Catholic priest, which oh, yeah. we know that the church in Ireland have a tense history, so I chose not to go with that version of yeah, story. Yeah,
1: and we're also aware that everywhere the church, every area the church moved into long after the fact, then they took credit for all the saints and the so-called uh, monks and like uh, doing the good deeds and they basically pirated the older stories of the pagans and the druids and the like yeah that did the actual first good
0: deeds yeah and that was a common thread they didn't just do it in ireland they did that everywhere where yeah, they just co-opted their religion to make it seem like theirs was just the same or as legitimate and so that the people would start like confusing yeah. uh figures yeah. so that right so that they could have the predominance. And the last point that I want to make about this is that the Ortak itself, or himself, was a giant being. And we've talked about it before in the Dragon Gods episode about how these giants, these uh, Nephilim, if you want to call them that, these hybrid beings were the ones who were put in charge, and they were often quite... Some of them were good and, you know, wholesome and wanted to help humans, but there were others who were very vicious, and this is a case of one that was vicious and cruel to the humans that he was supposed to be over in charge of.
1: Right. And that fits in with the rest of the world's holy books and other ancient codices that mention that there were a few different camps in these beings' mentality and their opinion toward the newer creation of humans and how they felt about them. And there were a few different camps and some appreciated them, some did not. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and literally demanding blood. Right.
1: One of the most well-known stories of Nobel Prize-winning Israeli writer Shmuel Yosef Agnon is the Lady and the Peddler. It's also Yosef the Peddler who wanders a great East European forest and encounters an isolated house inhabited by an enigmatic lady named Helen. First finding refuge there from a pouring rain, he is eventually seduced to stay and enter into a sexual relationship. Later, however, he discovers that she has a habit of killing her husbands, devouring them, and drinking their blood. He learns that this has kept her young and that she had done this to many men before him. She also tries to kill Yosef but fails, wounds herself and later dies. She is then eaten by birds while Yosef the Peddler picks up his pack and resumes his wanderings.
0: You know what's interesting about that story? It kind of reads like a Taoist, yes. one of those Taoist stories where somebody has like this life changing thing happen and then it's over and he just picks up and keeps on going <laughs> with his life.
1: Yes, and it also reminds me of that animated show Samurai Jack. Yes. Little, yeah. yeah. We move on into some of the medieval and European stories. During this time in the 18th century, there was an outbreak of vampire sightings in southeastern Europe and Transylvania, including frequent staking of people and grave diggings in order to identify and kill the potential revenants. Even government officials were compelled into the hunting and staking of vampires. Despite being called the Age of Enlightenment, during which most folklore legends were viciously repressed by entrenched officialdom, the belief in vampires significantly increased throughout most. Of Europe. The panic began with an outbreak of alleged vampire attacks in East Prussia in 1721 and in the Habsburg Monarchy from 1725 to 1734, which spread to other localities. Two famous vampire cases, which were the first to be officially recorded, involved the corpses of Petr Blagojevich and Arnold Paoli from Serbia. Blagojevich was reported to have died at the age of 62, but allegedly returned after his death, asking his son for food. When the son refused, he was found dead the following day. Blagojevich soon supposedly returned and attacked some neighbors who died from loss of blood. In the second case, Arnold Paoli, an ex-soldier turned farmer who allegedly was attacked by a vampire years before, died while hanging. After his death, people began to die in the surrounding area until it was widely believed that Paoli had returned to prey on the neighbors.
0: I think if I saw a neighbor that had died show up on my porch a couple years after he died, I would assume he's not asking for a cup of sugar.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I would assume. Incidents were well documented. Government officials examined the bodies, wrote case reports, and published books throughout Europe. The hysteria, which is commonly referred to as the 18th century vampire controversy, raged for a generation. The problem was exacerbated by rural epidemics of vampire attacks, with locals digging up bodies and in some cases staking them. Dom Augustin Camé, a well-respected French theologian and scholar, put together a comprehensive treatise in 1746, which was ambiguous concerning the existence of vampires. Kalmea mass reports of vampire incidents. Numerous readers, including both a critical Voltaire and supportive demonologists, believed that the treatise itself was a claim that vampires existed. In his philosophical dictionary, Voltaire wrote, quote, These vampires were corpses who went out of their graves at night to suck the blood of the living, either at their throats or stomachs, after which they returned to their cemeteries. The persons so sucked waned, grew pale, and fell into consumption. While the sucking corpses grew fat, got rosy, and enjoyed an excellent appetite, it was in Poland, Hungary, Silesia, Moravia, Austria, and Lorraine that the dead made this good cheer. End quote. It's very important to note here the trend that Academians have and official DOM in telling people Oh, you know, these entrenched superstitions of the primitives of these times, you know, they just couldn't let go of their superstitious beliefs and practices, and so they were accusing each other of being vampires and this and that. And considering those types of accusations, it's imperative to note that in this period from late BC through early AD and on into the medieval era, if we are to believe the historical accounts we are given, that there was no electricity, there was no lighting, no streetlights, then it's important to consider that the elements would also be more punishing. The nighttime would be more punishing. The cold weather would be that much more difficult to navigate, specifically at night. So people are going out into the streets to dig up coffins, to exhum bodies, to stake people. That's a lot of effort to go to just based on superstitions and i think that the normal person is not going to even if they are a little so-called superstitious they're not going to go to that kind of effort that kind of trouble and difficulty in punishing elements just to stake a body because they have this superstitious and impractical belief They went to a great deal of effort to deck houses and protective items, assemble protective weapons, unearth suspected vampires, etc., etc., ad infinitum de nausea. This kind of effort is usually spawned by a very impending external impetus. To even imply they did this solely due to misplaced superstition is a monomaniacal reductionism, the equivalent of religious fanaticism.
0: That kind of reminds me of the one show that we've been watching, excellent show, from... How people kind of start out and they're like, well, this can't make sense. And then by the end of the episode, they're also putting a talisman in their window and pulling their blinds. And when a community comes together against what they perceive to be a threat, whether it's been viewed by all of them or one of them, when people have proof, they start to put things into place to act. So to say that, oh, these superstitious peasants are just hill folk with nothing better to do, again, like you said, is very insulting and reductionist.
1: Yeah, and also in that show, the people that first come into that town and haven't experienced the supernatural menace that haunts that town, they don't believe. But as the saying goes, seeing is believing. Mm-hmm. Likewise, experiencing that kind of terror is believing in it, because you have had that 1st experience with it. So after these people have been exposed to it, there's no questioning it. It's a given, and they're all working together immediately. Yeah. It's important to note that Gnosticism in and of itself was not merely Coptic Christianity. Gnosticism was also comprised of primarily pagan, pantheistic, and many other shamanic based ancient ritual beliefs and practices. Gnostic texts do not typically refer to vampires in the way the modern popular culture understands them. Various forms of Gnosticism were practiced under numerous titles. There was a very diversified collection of ritual and other beliefs and practices from numerous different cultures. Its texts often explore complex cosmologies, dualistic worldviews, and the quest for spiritual knowledge and enlightenment. There are some Gnostic texts that contain themes or elements that could be loosely associated with vampiric ideas, such as the consumption of life force or the notion of spiritual predation. In some Gnostic texts, you find references to archons or demonic entities that feed on human spiritual energy or attempt to keep humans in a state of spiritual ignorance. These entities could be seen as representations of oppressive forces that drain one's spiritual vitality. One example of such a theme is found in the Apocryphon of John, a Gnostic text that mentions Archons as rulers of the material world who seek to imprison human souls. Another text, the Pista Sophia, contains stories of souls being trapped in the lower realms and struggling against malevolent beings. A more modern-day mention of Gnostic subjects can be referenced from the show Coast to Coast, hosted by Art Bell. In the episode Gnostics and Archons, Art Bell hosts John Lash, an author, teacher, and lifelong student of world mythology. Lash discusses when Gnostics, a group of ancient pagan initiates, knew about aliens. According to Lash, the Gnostics had a sophisticated level of psychic awareness and practiced remote viewing of aliens. Much of their knowledge was lost because of a, quote, massive and deliberate destruction of their writings.
0: So that includes the Library of Alexandria as well?
1: Yes, the Library of Alexandria included many ancient Gnostic codices. Some of the surviving original pagan writings are the Nag Hammadi, or Nag Hammadi as it's sometimes called. Lash claims these refer explicitly to an alien species called the Archons. Lash conveyed that the Archons are known as, quote, "...inorganic beings," end quote, that arose from a plasmatic surge from the galactic core. The ancients believed the Archons were a predatory species that could take away souls by theft, which Lash proposed was the equivalent to modern-day alien abduction. Lash also stated that the Archons are still here today. He expressed that fear of them was unnecessary and quoted a passage from the Gnostic text, The Second Apocalypse of James, as evidence, quote, they will not rule over you. They do not have dominion over the earth. They were not your creators, but they are in the solar system with you and you must face up to their existence, End quote.
0: That is such an excellent quote for many reasons, but the main ones being that it It helps us to understand that just as a natural ecosystem contains all sorts of creatures from things that produce energy to things that decompose and break things down to things that take life, all of this is part of the experience. It's not supposed to be separate.
1: Right, exactly. And you're going to have dark, and you're going to have light aspects. And just like Carl Jung, Dr. Carl Jung said, you cannot have one without the other. If you did, it would not be this existence, and it would probably not be existence at all anyway. So, like the fanatical religions of today try to do, you cannot extricate one from the other. Just accept that they are both here, and they both have valid purposes.
0: Yeah, and you know, in the beginning of the episode, when I was speaking about some of the historical sentiments about vampires, you know, there were words used like abomination and a blight and a curse, and so these words are subjective words, because for us, it is the food, it is not a good thing for them to be around, but they need us, and maybe there's something about them that we can incorporate into our own understanding of the universe and our place in it.
1: Right, exactly, and, and I'm in agreement with that as well, and also, who's to say that these creatures are not far older than us if they come from this category of these beings that are mixed spiritual, mixed supernatural, and natural makeup. And a lot of these ancient texts, these ancient codices and myths, tell us that there are far older, more ancient beings than us humans, that we are actually the new game, we're actually the new kid on the block. So, that being said, we need to respect that, and respect their space, and I think that everything else will fall in line.
0: Right. And I also believe that this more modern phenomenon of denying the existence of these beings, or the existence of anything, because there's a lot of that regardless, but the people that these stories and these accounts are coming from, it's important to note that many of them, before Christianity and everything, like all those organized religions, came in and said, we're the ones who know everything, those people had a healthy respect for these beings. And it's important to maintain a balance like that in everyday life. So, for example, we were talking about the or talk that was an imbalance. He was definitely abusing his position and all yes. that stuff. So, naturally, he was taken care of. And the people were like, you know, we're not really into this, but we know that these beings exist. This one is a problem. Yes. Speaking of horrifying vampire stories, do you have any from the modern age, the last 200 or so years?
1: I do, yes. As a matter of fact, the vampire of Highgate Cemetery is one of those stories. Highgate Cemetery was constructed in London, England in 1839 as a burial place for the elite. After many years of neglect, the cemetery is now allegedly the home of a terrifying vampire. According to the Highgate Vampire Society, the sightings started in the late 1960s. A tall figure with red eyes was spotted and repeatedly reported launching an investigation into the area and these claims. One of the strangest sightings was from the early 1970s. A young girl was walking past the cemetery and was attacked by a very tall, white-faced, dark figure that threw her to the ground. Fortunately, the shadow figure immediately vanished into thin air when a car pulled up to the scene. The girl, being in shock, was taken to the police station and eventually conveyed what had taken place. Her account supported the sightings reported by so many other members of the community. Sightings of this vampire continued you to this day
0: speaking of modern vampire sightings are you familiar with uh count saint germain jacques uh, saint germain
1: i am yes and that's a fascinating story
0: it is so we're gonna get into this as our feature fi- our feature motion picture of the episode <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay yeah yeah and that story continues to this day the sightings to this day
0: it does i think i saw some that were saying like 2011 like what is this count this Jermaine doing in in california 2011 in yeah and the speculations
1: are rife that he is a vampire type character i think it's entirely possible who knows
0: yeah he was also uh A friend of many people in the Theosophical Society. Yeah, Helena P. Blavatsky. Yes, and he was even known by Edgar Cayce who, while in trance state, was asked about his presence that he shows up where he's needed and kind of functioned in the form of an ascended Master.
1: Right, yeah, and he seems to be near where reformations are taking place, so that's an interesting twist too.
0: Yes, but he also had a very close connection with many royals and people in high places. The figure that we'll be talking about, the one that's associated with vampire lore in New Orleans, is Jacques Saint Germain. In the sultry heart of New Orleans, a city known for its mystique and magic, there lived a man whose presence sent shivers down the spines of those who crossed his path, shivers of delight and shivers of terror. His name was Jacques Saint Germain, or so he claimed. He introduced himself as a French aristocrat with a lineage that traced back through centuries of nobility. 200 years before Jacques Saint-Germain arrived in New Orleans in the 1700s, the Count Saint-Germain was dazzling the royal courts of Europe with his amazing alchemical feats such as removing the floss from diamonds and became known as the Wonder Man of Europe. His skills were so praised by Louis XV that he was provided a laboratory and a residence at the royal castle there in France. I briefly want to pause and go back to the vampire panic of the late 1700s in Europe that you spoke about. I'm not saying that this man was just a vampire and nothing more, but there's some facts that kind of point towards some shady stuff. Right. So he has a death certificate that was labeled 1784. It was thought that he was born in the early 1600s. He claimed to be the son of a Transylvanian prince. So that's number two. And he openly made claims that he was over 500 years old. This was substantiated because he was an excellent linguist, he spoke all the languages, and back then you had to travel. Travel is not cheap. Right. Especially back then. Yes. And he was buried in a private grave, and then we have two hundred years later a man claiming to be his descendant, he also has no record of being married or having children. So a man shows up claiming to be his descendant, looking like him, yeah, talking like him, yeah, with the same talent, making the same bold claims.
1: Yeah, this seems quite suspect.
0: So he wasn't an ordinary man, obviously. From the moment he arrived in New Orleans in the early 1930s, he seemed untouched by the passage of time, is what people were saying. He didn't have wrinkles. He had really dark, piercing eyes that held an ageless wisdom, and nobody could explain it. The philosopher Voltaire even said that he's a man who knows everything and who never dies. Interesting. And then people in New Orleans are saying this about Jacques, and Voltaire is saying that about the Count. It just matches up that way. Yes. And he, similarly, moved through the city's elite social circles and captivated everybody that he met with his charm and sophistication. For many reasons, everyone who was anyone wanted to get close to him. Like I said before, he spoke six languages, six plus. He was a brilliant painter, he played violin, he grew diamonds, and was an accomplished alchemist. And this is where people believed that his vast and seemingly ceaseless wealth came from, and he was throwing these parties with that money. Where the vampire myth comes in is with Jacques's nocturnal habits. So the rumors were that he didn't go out during the day. He did, but he preferred to be out at night. The soirees that he held in his French Quarter home extended early into the mornings. Guests would be reveling in lively conversation, eating all kinds of food, but he never ate. He was usually seen drinking out of a goblet nearby, but he never sat and ate at the table.
1: Yes, most of the research I've done on him says as much that he was never witnessed eating, usually ate alone. If he even ate at all, most of the reports were that he drank. Some suspected the blood, as you know.
0: Yeah, and so naturally, whispers began to circulate throughout the city. People often spoke of his seeming immortality and suggesting that he might be a vampire. The legends grew with each passing year as everybody else got older, but he never showed signs of aging, and as you said, some even claimed that he had a peculiar fascination with blood. Right. He was seen often frequenting places where sex workers were, and this is where the vampire part comes into play even deeper. Despite these accusations and some people even claiming to have proof, he was still mysterious and elusive. And the Count St. Germain in Europe, before he got to Eastern Europe and Germany and all those places, he had been arrested in London, but then mysteriously all charges were dropped, even though they had concrete proof that he was starting an insurrection. Yeah, that's very interesting. One fateful night, Jacques Saint-Germain vanished without a trace in New Orleans was after a woman had fallen from the balcony. Actually, she had jumped, and when the police came to investigate, he was gone completely. No one knew where he went, and there was no record of his identity or his departure from New Orleans. So naturally, that made him even more mysterious, because again, this is not some kind of low-level criminal unknown nobody. Everybody knew him in the right. city, so yep. he just disappeared without a trace and nobody had eyes on him. Interestingly enough, too, when the police came to investigate his house, they found a locked door upstairs. Inside of that room were wine bottles filled with human blood, supposedly.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. hmm the fact that the wine bottles filled with human blood were found, it definitely suggests that there was either some vampirism going on, or there was some sort of genetic experimentation that he was doing at that time, and it obviously still yet involved blood, human blood. And, you know, as you are well aware, the royals of the present day have even come out into the open, many of them, as a, that youth preservation comes, the most potent form of preserving your youth is through human blood. using it on the skin or drinking and things like that quite a few of them have come forward and made these statements to the press the media and things like that so it's interesting and you can't just dismiss those points yeah and the fact that he was also an accomplished alchemist which translates to today uh chemistry but back then alchemy was i think even superior depending on who was doing it i think that saint germain would have been one of those people that had a mastery over it obviously
0: Yeah, he wrote books about it, and I actually found one of them online. I didn't buy it, but it still exists, and I think it's about transfiguration, which fits with this whole mysterious vampire shapeshifting blood thing.
1: Another fascinating point about Jacques Saint-Germain is the fact that he has been cited all the way to even the recent years. One of the last stories that I heard about one of his more recent sightings was in that one show, The Unexplained, that was hosted by William Shatner. Oh, yeah. They had a special on Werewolves and Vampires, and they mentioned that the show came out in 2019, so it had to be from then until 2020 at least. So as the story goes, they were having the usual festive-type activity in the French Quarter, and there was a large crowd in the street, but then suddenly the crowd began to part mysteriously, and everyone was moving out of the way, and this mysterious figure is coming through, and he stops at a certain point, and people are actually looking on, wondering who this person is, this enchanted type individual, and he fit all the details of the description of Jacques Saint-Germain, and because as it was later recounted by many other people, they began to make that connection so as he stood there, then he raised his head. He had on a hat and, of course, a cloak. As the story is he cocked his head back. And you can see, at least from his nose down, and he appeared to be sniffing the air and took a brief moment as if he were taking in the night and the festivities, and then he just vanished. Wow. I believe the insinuation is that he vanished into thin air. Wow.
0: As we emerge from the shadowy depths of vampire lore and legend, we hope you've been entranced by the enigmatic tales that bind cultures and transcend time. Join us in our next episode as we venture further into the realm of cryptids, revealing even more mysteries that have fascinated and haunted us throughout the ages. Until then, may your curiosity forever remain unquenched. Thank you for joining us on this transformative journey through the Dragon's Eye. Stay connected on Instagram and TikTok at Dragon's Eye Podcast for additional content, behind-the-scenes glimpses, and updates on upcoming episodes. If you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platforms, we would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a review. And if you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up, subscribe to our channel, and leave a comment.